Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Racism doesn't bother you. Bad words don't bother you. What bothers you? I hate, uh, I hate frauds. The great impasse has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're doing the topic voted on by our beloved Patreon supporters, panpsychism. Is this the least prepared we've ever been? <laughs> I was hoping you were going to come prepared. You know how usually it's like either a Tamler topic or a, or a peas topic? I was like, I, I hope we both understand that this is a Tamler topic. <laughs> But no, I was definitely willing to prepare in the way that I'd say I did for the Thomas Kuhn episode right. most recently. But I found the literature a little tough to, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, really throw myself into for reasons I guess we'll we'll talk about when we get there, and um, right. not any reasons that have anything to do with our beloved Patreon. <laughs> That's right. Right. It's it just turns out to be less like Miyazaki inspired spirits live in the stones. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted. That's all I wanted. And I was going to just dive right in and just embrace it. And every but like that, like and then instead, like we're talking about zombies again. But now it's like micro fucking uh, micro experiential zombies or, uh, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll have some, I think, hopefully Decent things yeah, to say about it. There. Luckily, uh, you have a deep background in philosophy of mind. So you I'm can guide also through. in yeah, philosophy exactly. of zombies. mind. Zombies. Zombies. Um, but <laughs> fortunately, as as unprepared as we are for, for the main segment, <laughs> we, are, we are way more unprepared for the opening segment. To the point right. that we had to tweet out uh, like uh, an emergency broadcast to... Uh, <laughs> To like help send us questions that we will respond to because I don't know like did we think we what, what was the deal like why did we not have an opening segment topic I think we should just put our, our cards on the table here and say it's because we had terrible weeks yeah because <laughs> I don't think brutal. we even had anything <laughs> it's been a brutal week and like the day that we normally record we spent instead on the decoding the gurus podcast that's right so all our energy was spent. <laughs> And in fact, we're paying that forward to the to our patrons too, because we're posting the raw video for that for our Mm -hmm. beloved patrons. So hopefully they'll forgive us if they will forgive us. So what do we have on Twitter? So we we asked, we said, do you need advice and think weirdly that we might be able to help or shed light on your problem? Tweet or email us. Recording very soon. 
This was literally like I posted that forty five minutes ago. So. Uh, um, we got a, we got a good, we got some good ones. I think we can do an opening segment out of this. Yeah, yeah. Because all right, if you had to, this is a good question. If you had to give up your academic career to study a pseudo scientific subject full time, remote viewing, astral pro- projection, morphic resonance, etc., what subject would you pick? So this is pretty easy for me, but maybe not. <laughs> You would be a ghost hunter? (laughs) I would, yeah. I would definitely look into that in greater detail, especially since it's clearly what I'm going to die being remembered for, if anything. Um, The, I have a, an issue with the assumptions. The assumption is that I'm not already in a pseudoscientific career. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for saying that. I I would have been really mad at myself if I hadn't. (laughs) Um, No, you know, I I find it so hard to even think about what I would... I mean, astral projection sounds super cool. I I think I would... uh, Yeah, I would study something like whether, whether dreams, you know, have any impact on uh, like if, if you can have prophetic dreams how's that oh that's good i like yeah. that <laughs> um yeah in fact that's i like the good thing about being a philosopher as opposed to someone who at least has a pretense of doing like empirical <laughs> science is that i could just do these things you know <laughs> that's true you could write you could write a very hard-hitting article in whatever you know the mind yeah. um uh, on <laughs> astral projection, morphic resonance. I don't know what that is. Do I don't you? know what that is either. It sounds sounds, sounds fascinating. Hot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt Jankowski said, par- partially because of your recommendation, I've started watching The Shield. The show is fine, but the intro theme music is intolerable and makes me question that the show can possibly be good. I'm in season three now, and every episode is a struggle to hit mute to avoid the song. And this this actually. There's a broader topic to be uh, yeah, to, for discussion. I think here. I know what you're going to say, too. <laughs> well, it is a terrible, terrible, terrible theme song. Have you been turned off before entirely to shows because of the music? No, I'm also not even sure I think it's a terrible opening. Yeah. It, I didn't, it, it gets I didn't at, at the just like stress and like. Yeah, yeah it's grating. Uh, it's grating in a way that I think fits with the show thematically. I have a general problem with shows that uh, sh- that have Mexican gangsters in it, and every single time they go to like the place where the Mexican gangsters are hanging out, they play some Latin hip hop, mm-hmm. and just <laughs> you would think that like Spanish hip hop is widely mm-hmm. listened to in Southern California, but no, it's just like their way. It's the same way that they put like a funky filter whenever they have they have to convince the viewer that this is taking place in Mexico. You know, they put like right. a different. <laughs> That's what they do to set the stage for, you're about to see some Mexican gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> but they should the, just do like... Yeah. No, the the music in general in The Shield is disappointing. It's very late 90s. Um, yeah. So what I thought you were going to say is the broader issue, which is like, why don't you just skip ahead if you don't like yeah, the no, thing? Just, you know, like I, I like this is our, something that we get every so often. People yeah. will tell us there's a certain segment or there's a certain kind of thing we don't do. Like, so you just skip ahead if you don't like that kind of thing. You know, like no, that's what I do with podcasts. It's a very weird thing. It's like people feel do people feel obligated to just watch every second of something? I, don't I know, had or listen I, to. 
I had a girlfriend who was a completionist about TV shows, and she did. She uh, it was some sort of pathology. She needed to watch uh, like the whole intro too. Yeah, Netflix I mean, and things of the ilk have made it easy, just like we make it easy. Like right now, you could just hit next, right. and you would skip the entire <laughs> intro segment, <laughs> or maybe just go to the next episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, mute it. You know, I guess maybe. If you don't want to, if it's if you don't have one of those kinds of players where you can hit for the opening songs that I like, I do kind of feel like your ex girlfriend did. Yeah, where yeah, like yeah. I well, kind of feel like I'm not gonna, I shouldn't skip the wire, you know, right. music, even though I love, you know, or the Sopranos. The or Sopranos, the, it sets the stage. It puts me in the in the mind yeah. state, you know. Totally. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, and I think with the shield, I wouldn't be that committed to it because it's not that good. It's also, it's also, isn't it pretty short? Yeah. It's, it's short. It's very noisy. Yeah. Uh, and, and I believe it's Puerto Rican, not even Mexico. So you have our permission to skip it. Just don't skip the shield. Don't, don't stop watching a good show like that. All right. Uh, Andre Habit, um, Dr. Summers, former human situation student here. You can call me Tamar. I remember way back in 2012, you all spoke on the show about the dissertation process, and I appreciate appreciated the framing. Any f- further insights into getting it done? For context, I'm no longer interested in pursuing academia. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that he still wants to. <laughs> I don't. like. I stand by what I said, which is what Alex Rosenberg, my dissertation advisor, told me, which is just get the fucking thing done and don't feel yeah. like you have to read every single thing on that on that topic or respond to every single just get it done that's all that matters like get your ideas out do the thing and you know nobody's going to read it besides the people on your dissertation committee which is false because even they aren't reading it (laughs) like fully so really all it is is something for you to go back to and be able to make use of in some other way, like a writing sample for jobs or for future articles or, you know, uh, things like that, which I, my dissertation was very useful for, for me, uh, to me for. But I think the best part of that, the part of that that I stand behind so strongly is don't feel like you have to respond to every person in the literature and don't feel like you have to read even every person (laughs) who's written on that topic because that will just paralyze you and and slow you down yeah it's a similar thing with just anytime you you even submit to a journal and the reviewers give you 25 different things that you need to address Mm -hmm. um i think the temptation is to to satisfy them and then what you end up doing is writing a paper that you never wanted to write in the first place (laughs) yeah and and i think that's a danger of a different kind for your dissertation and i I would say to add to what towner just said uh besides just getting it done there there are a couple of mistakes that i think people make one is to think that this whatever their dissertation topic is is going to somehow determine the rest of their career right and as you can tell in tamler's case it certainly didn't and in mine i don't think it determined is just had the common feature that I am interested in that thing that I was studying and I'm still interested in it. But Wait, the second was yours one, on disgust? No, it was actually on moral judgment. It was on yeah. um, uh, sort of perceiving uh, moral blame and responsibility um, and praise. The second one is to think that you can't change your dissertation topic because <laughs> there's a certain point at which you can still do that. And if you're not feeling it, like if you dread the thought of working on your dissertation, 
maybe you should go back to your committee and say, I want to do something else because it's yeah. not worth spending all your time on something that makes you miserable. No, and even though nobody's going to read it really, it's still a really good source of material for you to go back to as you're starting to try to publish um, yeah. more frequently. And so you should definitely be doing something that you care about and want to. And, you know, all this presumes that you have the kind of advisors that will let you take this advice. Right. Um, that we're giving, but I totally agree. Like, write about something that you're deeply committed to, and if it turns out, oh, I thought I would be interested in uh, panpsychism, but it seems to be just a lot of philosophy of mind stuff <laughs> that I thought I had escaped from. Then I, I thought I, it was going to be about, like, fucking lots of different kinds of people. <laughs> <laughs> fucking was really like, rocks and cactuses and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, um, yeah, I and I'm sorry you're not interested in pursuing it as a career. I'm glad you're still interested in one of the yeah essential aspects of it. I think actually, you know, we talked about this quite a bit about the, the sort of the knowledge that most people can't be, stay in academia, at least not in in the way that they probably want. I think uh, there there needs to be less regret about leaving academia in the sense that I think a PhD in many topics can be a very good thing to do. Whether yeah. like it's just, just good for your mind. It's great. <laughs> right. I think for like it can help you in your career. Like there's no there's It's no a very reason. weird thing right now that there's a segment of academics who it seems like their main job as they understand it right now is to like convince students not to go into academia. And yeah. I think it's because of the just brutal job market and all these various other problems. But just going to graduate school and getting a PhD and if you're funded, like that can be a really rewarding thing just as a way of having a full life. It doesn't have to be necessarily your career. It does mean that you're taking a risk and you're going to have to figure out a career if, if, if academia doesn't work out for you professionally. But still, you know, you'll have gotten so much out of it. Yeah. And I think that to the extent that the advice is if you don't like what you're doing, you should change, then that's just general advice that you should probably follow. Yeah. Um, but like a lot of the people who, who think that academia is miserable, it's not that I don't believe them. I just think that it's also true that so many jobs are even more miserable. Yeah, um, exactly. So, yeah. That's a, <laughs> if you think this sucks, just wait till you try yeah. you know, the other thing. Right. Um, um, all right. Why does nobody care about my Wordle score, or do they? I think they do. This not not everybody. It's just you. Yeah. Do you post yours? I have, but always with like a little joke or twist yeah. to it. It's um, sort of like dreams. Like nobody really wants to hear your like your dream is interesting to you and you alone. Nobody really <laughs> cares to hear about like what your dream was. I was gonna post a Wordle and then say, if I don't play Wordle, then Putin wins. <laughs> and then thought, oh no, like maybe that's that's not cool. Do you think that's, I did the right thing or should I have done it? I, I think have you, gone should viral? Even, you shouldn't have even said it right now. <laughs> it's like thinking about having a, having sex with a kid. It's wrong. That's right. Just yeah, even exactly. to just think about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, okay. I want I want to talk a little bit about Dan Finnan's question because uh, not because the question itself, because of the grander. A topic of our age difference. He says, Caddyshack or Animal House? And I was like, I don't, you know, I, I probably remember some of Caddyshack. I've never seen Animal House. 
And I take it that these are formative movies for people of your age. Um, <laughs> and I was trying to think what my equivalent would be. Um, and I, I, I'm not quite sure if I have. I, I want to be very clear with my listeners <laughs> right now. Dave is five years older than me. Five, younger. Precisely, I'm sorry, five years younger than yeah. me. And, it uh, turns out to matter. <laughs> and in every other way, given the advanced years that we've gotten to, that is a meaningless distinction. But <laughs> it, you're actually right that with these two movies, it actually probably does matter because everybody I know in high school at least saw those movies. And a lot of people, I don't think, I think Animal House was even before my time. Yeah. Uh, in terms of people getting really excited about it, but but Caddyshack people w- you know would die for, and um, yeah, people quote it all the time, and uh, and it's and it is kind of funny, you know. It's a good, it's it's a funny movie. The, well, I mean, in some you ways, got Bill what, Murray and Chevy Chase, and you know. yeah, what I got in for like my formative comedy years was like the shitty attempts at recreating those movies so right. like porky you know i grew up with like yeah and like police academy one two and three you know like yeah. just stuff that wasn't it was was just not that good um you didn't like the guy that makes all the sound effects oh, i loved that guy yeah everybody loved that. <laughs> it was the best part about it who i hated was bobcat goldthwaite <laughs> oh, i forgot that he was in it too uh, Were you confused about your attraction to Steve Gutenberg? Steve Gutenberg, I, I had no idea he was Jewish. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize what that meant. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can't was, tell from looking at him. Uh, all right, do you have an answer to that though, Caddyshack or Animal House? Uh, I guess Caddyshack, but. Yeah. Like, I don't have strong feelings. I, I remember liking Animal House. I haven't seen it. You know what I would think might be, like, a this version for you is Fletch. Yeah. Because that was, like, what was that? Like, 85 or something? Like, yeah, 86? Maybe. And so, like, I would think that that would be your caddy. Yeah, I saw Fletch on VHS, I do remember. It must have been mm-hmm. right around 1986. Fletch um, is good. Fletch holds up. Yeah. I haven't seen it in years, but... but Speaking uh, of academia, Agony Aunt Wizards which I don't totally get. Um, uh, how old is too old to start a career in academia? I, you know, I started at, at a somewhat late age at 30. But, like, what do you think about, like, starting a PhD program? Well, some people do it, like, 36 or 37. Some really good students, master's students that we've had, have gone on to really good PhD programs that um, were around kind of mid-30s. I think that can work, too. I have strong opinion that it's, that it's, it's a misguided to think that there is a too old i mean maybe too old for you but people all the time say like no because then you know i would be 45 and when i finish or whatever i'm like you're you're gonna be 45 at some point anyway you'll either have a phd or you won't like my grandfather went and got his phd in geology in his late 50s but but i i take this to not just do a PhD program, but actually like with the motivation of then getting a job and uh, making that your career. Cause that's what it, I mean, he's talking yeah. about career in academia. I mean, I think that's the same, like I, I don't quite understand why it would be uh, age dependent in any way. Like, do, do you want to start a tenure track job when you're 45? Well, maybe you don't want the stress, I guess, but like, I don't, I mean, I think if you think you love it, go for it. Yeah, yeah, I agree, actually, completely, yeah. 100%. Good. You want to do this empathy for people in Ukraine, but not Yemen? 
Yeah. I mean, I think there's an obvious answer there, which is we probably shouldn't. <laughs> right? I mean, we that shouldn't have empathy for the people in Ukraine. For anybody. Yeah. You know, that our attention is pulled and that, that there is propaganda that pulls us in one direction or another or that we're partial to one group or another is, is you know, one of those features of human nature that you can fight against. Um, I think this is probably targeting... Uh, a, there was like a day or two where people were saying that the only reason all of a sudden Americans give a shit about another country getting invaded is because they're white and they look like uh, white Americans. And and then somebody tweeted, I think it's the, you know, the 1619 Project woman. Why am I blanking? And, and Hannah Jones, right? Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, she said, like, Europe is like not even a continent. And, um, and then Jason Stanley, your boy, tweeted like, <laughs> Stop like talking about you know whether Europe is a continent or whether um, I forget his other. Thing. Oh, was that like the it's a social construction, like like the continent yeah. of Europe is a social construction. And I th- and I take it the implication of that was was that like you know the only, again what what you're really being drawn to is the whiteness of them, not the like Europeanness of them of it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's the case. I, I do know that we we have a particular diplomatic history with Russia, and yeah. I think we're like more involved there. I don't, you know, the same way that we were super involved in the Middle East. But I do think there's something to it. Totally. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think like like you said, the, the 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 solution isn't to not feel empathy for the people in Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. The solution is to be like, oh yeah, we've been like having drones circling like villages in Yemen yeah. for the last like fifteen years. Maybe we yeah. should think about like how that feels for them, and not just how it feels for Ukrainians to have their country invaded. You know, maybe we should have thought about this with the Iraqis. Maybe we should, you know. So yeah. obviously, I agree with all of that a hundred percent. And the double standard, especially as Americans, of you know, how how strongly we're reacting against this versus like some of the shit that we've done over the last, you know, 50 yeah. years is it's hypocritical for racist reasons, but then just off, off for just imperialist nationalist reasons. Yeah, there is also some a topic that I think might be interesting to talk about at some point, which is there. I do get overwhelmed at the polls on my empathy. Like there is so much suffering that it is distressing because when you do pick one thing to be to care a lot about, it does seem like it's a very easy thing to be accused of that like why don't you care about these other people who are even more deserving? Right. And yeah. then you never you know nobody wins that way. I don't even know what my proper response as a human being ought to be about how much I care about wars that aren't here, which is to some degree, but like I also can't do a whole lot, right? So. It's, so sometimes I wish for the time when I didn't know about these things. Like you should, I, you can do. You can go to Ukraine. <laughs> you and know, you're right. Fight. You could always do something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're right. I'm not going to. Let's be real. I'm not <laughs> going to. No matter how much younger I am than you, <laughs> I'm still too old. <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh, it's funny though. We were talking about this with the gurus yesterday. Like, it does seem like some of the more bullshitty culture war stuff has taken a little bit of a breather, you know? Like, there's been less of that because this doesn't lend itself as easily to culture war stuff as, say, COVID did. It just feels like everybody's taking just a little break. I'm sure it won't last. Yeah. Yeah. And there have been, we talked about the the attempts to try to spin this into a culture war (laughs) topic, which is just like, no. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, is it uh, meaningful to consider one place more civilized than another? And should we care about more civilized places? I found this to be kind of an interesting question because uh, I was just thinking about, I was I watching you know some YouTube rabbit hole about um, Western music theory. There's a, a YouTuber named Adam Neely who is uh, an amazing lead good video essayist about music he's a jazz uh, performer and he had a video essay on white supremacy in western music theory and he he laid out a very dispassionate case for why uh classical music of the western tradition ended up dominating what we call like music theory Mm -hmm. and how like african civilizations had a much more complex set of uh, sense of rhythm, for instance, than we did. And other <laughs> cultures have different different uh, scales. And it's really easy for me to think impulsively that, of course, there are some places that are more civilized than others. Until you really think about, well, just what do I mean by civilized? Do I mean that they have more technology? Do I mean that they have less war? What, like, what does that mean? And I yeah. think at that point, you're just sort of at a wash. <laughs> like... You just well, it's going to betray some parochialism. Exactly how you exactly. define civilization. Now, somebody right. could say, "Well, I define it as, you know, like wh- how much computer technology have you yeah. uh, achieved or whatever." Um, and then it'll be clear that um, you know, if you define it in a, in a narrow enough way or precise enough way, then it'll be clear that it's a meaningful distinction. But definitely not. Then, if that's what you're doing, that you should care more about one. Yeah. If I had to embrace a normative sense of of the term, I would say um, how how the quality of life for the people who live in that society is. What do your poorest people look like? What do your prisoners look like? Like, you know, people in in prison for committing crimes. What do your children look like? Um, That those to me would be the markers that I would endorse, I think, as markers. What color is your skin? <laughs> what, <I think. laughs> um, yeah. what's, what's the BMI of your average person? Um, yeah, I uh, no, I mean, but yeah, that's also complicated because sometimes certain countries' conditions aren't good because of the actions of certain other countries that like to consider themselves more civilized. Yeah, no, no, it's it's true. They can't, you're saying they can't help being less civilized. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Hey, you said Africans have more rhythm. So. They have, a, yeah, complex polyrhythms. Right. That yeah. I can't, um, uh, I, violence seems like one of those, though. I think what people often, when they accuse somebody of being uncivilized, I think they are accusing them of being like brutes about their violence. But it's all, that's also just like a, we draw, you know, we have drones to do our killing. You guys are doing like, stabbing people and beheading them you know right, we're more exactly. civilized right we're just uh like have in a bunker in utah like playing, <laughs> playing like, a, with joysticks. basically an xbox game yeah just... <laughs> <laughs> i my measure which i actually think is a good measure is like what do you think of andre tarkovsky and his films how can you describe why they're so transcendent you say that as just as i read somebody replying to the gurus who said can't tell how glad I was to hear that both Chris and Matt hated the movie. I'm a devoted fan of the Wizards, but they fucking love and appreciate the most boring movies. <laughs> I was proud of myself for not falling asleep, let alone watch it twice. <laughs> Are their audience just like dipshits? <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly he's our audience too. Um, yeah. People get bored. Um, if yeah. And just like you got bored with the Chalmers article. 
Well, we'll see. We'll <laughs> see if I did or not. Uh, All right. I feel like there was another one I wanted to do, but we need to move Yeah, how on. about the last one? It's Friday night. What are you drinking? Um, I am drinking red wine because I had bourbon a little earlier as I was trying to like get through the chalmers. Yeah. I'm drinking water and a fucking mocha. <laughs> so do you want to explain why you're not drinking right now? I'm not a big drinker. I never drink. Uh, well, sorry. I rarely drink when we record. Last night was an exception. I took a couple shots. Um, but I rarely drink when we record. I am your intoxicant, I think is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be sharp because you come with some bullshit sometimes. You know, I got to be on my toes. Yeah, well, but if I come with bullshit, I'm, I'm, you know, half in the bag and also, like, probably in an edible, so. Uh, All right, well, when we come back, we are going to have a very detailed technical discussion about panpsychism. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, relationships take work, and a lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? Whether it's hitting the gym or making time for your haircut, which I sometimes have problems with, and then I get crap from all listeners about that, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset, so invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. And look, you know, maybe you're not feeling completely down and out or, or lost or totally depressed. Maybe you're just feeling a little anxious or even just stuck, stuck in your job, in the annoying details of daily life. You just can't get yourself to do something that you obviously need to do. Sometimes it can help to talk to someone who's completely unbiased, someone who can just listen objectively without judgment, without taking sides on anything. They can just give you a fresh perspective on the difficulties you're facing. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, if you can't take another Zoom session. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Very Bad Wisdom. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks as always to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment and thank all of our listeners for getting in touch with us in all the different ways you do on Twitter, on Reddit, on uh, emailing us, um, Instagram, Facebook. If you would like to contact us, let us know what we got wrong, what how how misguided we are, or, you know, Maybe even something nice. Uh, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us, at verybadwizards, or at peas, or at Tamler. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook. You can go to our subreddit, and there is a lively discussion often going on there often making fun of me and my opinions about ghosts. And You've been getting a lot of love about your uh, opinions. Yeah, well, I think it's just going to be a pendulum like that. Right? <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, we've been picking on him. Let's be nice to the poor, the poor guy for a bit, and then we can go back to shitting on him again. <laughs> and you can rate us on Apple podcast i feel like there's been more ratings recently and we really appreciate that because i yeah, think it is very helpful i think it's kind of showing up in numbers in the numbers of people that have been listening and subscribing to the podcast so we really really appreciate those five star ratings please keep them coming and and yes thank you so much obviously our episode today is in part thanks to all the people who have been part of this awesome community yes that exact community of people who have opted tamler opted to support us in more tangible ways yes <laughs> um we really appreciate it uh if you want to do so um you know we work hard we make this free we don't ever want anybody to pay for it but if you do want to support us and keep the lights on you can head over to our verybadwizards.com and click on the support page and there you'll find the various ways that you can do that you can give us one time or recurring donations on PayPal. We really appreciate it. You can buy some swag. You can uh, buy mugs. You can buy T-shirts. Um, and you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. We've had uh, quite an active Patreon, I think, lately. But in part because we got, we got, we got a freebie. We got to post more, most recently our appearance on the uh, Decoding the Gurus who do this crazy thing where they actually <laughs> videotape, videotape. How old am I? <laughs> they video. <laughs> they, they, they get out there. Super eight. And <laughs> 16 millimeter. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, and they post it. So they let us, they let us post it. Um, if you do become one of our Patreon supporters, you could do so at any of a number of levels at $1. You'll always get our ad free episodes. You get all my beat compilations of which one is coming soon. $2 and up, you get all of our bonus segments, including the aforementioned video, two and a half hours or something of us looking into the camera, um, every other bonus segment. We still have to do the anime one. You yeah. keep saying you're going to watch it. But. I will. You know what? Uh, we'll just do that in Costa Rica. In Costa Rica. Rica. Oh, yeah. sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Um, um, yeah. Oh, what was I going to say? You also get our the Ask Us Anythings now. Mm. Just a, a few weeks later, um, in audio form. That's right. So now, once a month, we do the Ask Us Anything at the ten dollar and up tier, and uh, 
when we post a brand new one, the old one gets uh, included in the $2 and up. Everybody who gets bonus bonus segments. At $5 and up, you get to vote on an episode topic. And hopefully, you'll exercise more wisdom than the topic that you chose for today. <laughs> <laughs> but we really appreciate it. We didn't know. That was our fault. We didn't know. We thought it was going to be... <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> we wanted to do it. We would have done it anyway. We were going to do yeah. an episode on panpsychism, I think. Yeah. And uh, and we do really appreciate that. I'd love to hear from our listeners who voted on this and suggested it because it's been suggested so many times. Yeah. Uh, I think they were probably thinking what we <laughs> They were probably thinking what we were. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, you get to vote on a topic. You get our Brothers Karamazov series, uh, five parter. You get. Tamler's lectures yeah. on Plato's Symposium. You get my intro psych lectures. Um, well, that's all at $5 and up. And at $10 and up, you get the Ask Us Anything video segments. You get to ask us a question. And so far, we've answered every single question asked of us. Yeah. And, and we've done it well, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'd say we've answered every single question asked of us. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, everybody, for all your support. We Thank really you so much. We're very grateful. All right, let's talk about panpsychism. This is the most requested topic from our Patreon supporters. Normally, I think every single time, actually, we've had a really good discussion and, <laughs> and it's been a really good episode for the, you know, six or seven times. How many times have we done this? It's a good question. Probably around then, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, I hope that this will be the case this time, I think that the difference perhaps is maybe that we came in with certain expectations about what the debate would be like that weren't met. But I guess just very briefly, panpsychism is the view that the fundamental entities of reality are mental or conscious in some way. The idea being, given that the only thing we have direct access to, the only thing we know that we can't deny is the fact that we have consciousness, conscious phenomena are the one thing we essentially can't doubt. You can't doubt it if you're experiencing it. So then, and we can maybe talk about eliminativists who say you can, or the Dennett, you know, kind of view, which is yeah. you kind of can't and kind of can't. But, right. um, but, the, but this is the one thing that we that we have direct access to, and so why not think that this is as fundamental or more fundamental than what we take to be matter, like non-conscious matter. Because if you, if you think that consciousness arises in some way or emerges or is completely separate from what you think of as matter, which is essentially non-conscious or non-mental or non-mind-based, then you have this whole host of problems or questions that come up about well, how does that lead us to have the subjectively rich qualitative experiences that we have? So if you just say, I think this is the sort of driving idea behind it, that the funda like at the most fundamental level, everything is conscious, everything is mental or mind-based to some degree. At, at the very least, you're coming up with a more parsimonious explanation for all the things that you are trying to explain all the phenomena in question and and most and especially the fact that we have these subjective states qualia 
we see redness, we smell coffee. Like, why not just combine the two, unify the two in a way to make everything mental? Right. And whether or not that's the parsimonious move, I guess, is what is that debate. But I do, I, I think that it really is important to understand what it is that the claims panpsychism is all about as a way of trying to get out of the rather sticky position that modern philosophy put itself in, or modern here meaning like post-Descartes, um, which is that seeming uh, puzzle that emerges from the belief both that things uh, that the fundamental nature of existence is material, that there is the, the only stuff that is in the universe is material stuff, and the undeniable truth of consciousness, that is, we are experiencing things. And so the ways in which people have tried to get out of this is to either posit, no, there is separate mind stuff, there is separate experience stuff like that we have um, that is completely different from material world, and that's like all dualism in all its forms or as you say be just double down on materialism and say either whatever you think consciousness is is not really the case it just is nothing but material stuff or that ah you don't understand what i mean by material by material i mean also things that can in like this awesome way arrange themselves to be conscious it's just that it only happens rarely yeah. And and uh, I think broadly those three strategies, are, I mean those two strategies are the ones that in some form or another people have, have tried to endorse throughout the, the debates in philosophy of mind as to how to understand the nature of consciousness. And I didn't know, so just as like my background, I didn't really know that panpsychism was a viable candidate as an explanation for this this hard problem of consciousness or at least one that was taken seriously so i don't think it is i mean this is one of the issues i have with the debate so number one i i honestly was going into this thinking that i would be really in, attracted to the panpsychic position because you know i have come so far from my uh, days as a young graduate student and early career professor, you know, denying everything, being a skeptic about everything. You know, like I'm now so much more open, obviously, to the strangeness of uh, the universe. What open kind of open is me... so value-laden. Open. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, it is. But what I guess disappointed me about the literature, at least that we read, and I did read a ton of stuff on this, actually, yeah. is that... I'm not even sure this is a substantive debate. Like, I'm not even sure that this debate isn't terminological. I mean, that's something we can talk about. But I guess what I'm... But the, in response to what you were saying about panpsychism being an explanation for the hard problem, because it seems like it has all the same problems as the materialist. It's just maybe, like, different words, that, uh, in, but it's the same problem. Right, so... Explanatory here, like, uh, I don't know that I even mean it, but what I was trying to get at is that there is a seeming contradiction to these two beliefs. The one that the universe is nothing but matter, right? And the other, the undeniable fact of existence. And I think that panpsychism is viewed, at least that's my understanding, as a way to get out of the fundamental contradiction. Because, uh, at least as Strawson, we should say, I guess, what we read. We read a, an article by Galen Strawson, um, 
and we try to read an article by David Chalmers. Strawson's uh, paper is called Realistic Monism, Why Physicalism Entails Panpsychism. And I think that what he's, the move that he's trying to make is to say, well, the mistake was to ever think that one, the way to get out of the obviousness of materialism is to posit non-material stuff. Thought that was that was bad. That's like a, the wrong way of going about it. We don't want to be dualists. And the other one was to say, if you posit only material stuff, that you can't have a consistent view, a view that is consistent with the reality of subjective experience. And so he wants to say, well, the error the whole time was to think that physical stuff isn't experience stuff. And so what he wants to say is at the most fundamental level, and like, well, it's not obvious, like, it wasn't obvious to me, nobody here means that rocks are, are like thinking things, but rather that even at the most basic constituent level of matter, like photons, atoms, whatever, quarks, that there is some degree of subjective experience happening. And I think that the belief is that if you posit experience into matter, then you don't have to worry about this problem. At least that's what I think Strawson thinks. Yeah, so the problem is getting into the details then of how this explanation is going to look because disappointingly, they're not arguing that, you know, there's some overriding consciousness like I, I thought I, I I thought I could get like some Buddhist shit out of this you know like <laughs> like a universal consciousness right? yeah kind of a universe of consciousness and and mind in a way that really is at odds with our current with our current scientific understanding of of how things work or if it's not at odds at the very least it's it's a necker cube kind of like different framework a different lens for how to understand the world whereas with this because you get into the details of like what it means for an electron to be conscious or what it means for like an atom to be conscious, it, it, it's like, well, okay, whatever it means, it's not that electrons are having the same kinds of conscious experiences that you and I are having at all. Like nobody thinks that. That would be crazy. So you still have the question of how, however you understand electrons being conscious, like however you understand what that means, translate into this kind of macro level consciousness that we experience all the time and just saying oh no but that actually now makes sense because the electrons are conscious <laughs> no it doesn't right in the same way that i get frustrated with materialists who say when you see red that just is you know this combination of brain states or something like that and saying you see red is just a way of saying that this combination of neurons is activating in your brain or whatever like that does that's not an explanation you know that's uh, that doesn't explain how that turns into my very rich and seemingly qualitative experience of of red to start talking to me about electrons but in the same way like you know talking about conscious electrons doesn't do that either you <laughs> right. know right so no i totally agree here is the the force that i see this the, like the whole let's say the Strassen article um, has, which is here are some views that I think are logically contradictory, right? Yeah. So he really thinks that it is a, uh, a mistake of analysis to think that you could get experience out of non-experiential things. Yeah. And so it's true. The solution just is he and Chalmers both, they actually have 
zero commitment to uh, any like uh, universalist sort of consciousness or, or they don't even care to describe what it would feel like to be a rock or an atom. They just want to say the way that we're going to get out of this contradiction of, uh, that we've found ourselves in is just to make some statements that aren't internally inconsistent. Yeah. Right. And that's fundamentally, I think, to, to you and me both dissatisfying it maybe is a little more satisfying to me in that I am uncomfortable at there being any logical contradiction to begin with. So the attempt like feels like one that needs to be undertaken. But it seems like in some ways I would rather sit with the discomfort of knowing that something fascinatingly experiential arises out of non-experiential matter um, than I would just simply positing that experience is built into the fundamental nature of reality. Because I don't, I don't know what that means. I just don't. Okay, so here's the two things that he thinks people like you are committed to that can't be reconciled, right? Yeah. And he calls one of these propositions N-E. Physical stuff is in itself, in its fundamental nature, something wholly and utterly non-experiential. So the idea is that whatever you think the fundamental stuff that makes up the universe, that isn't experiential. That's, yeah. not, that's not conscious in any way, shape, or form. Right. A and then the other proposition is experience is a real concrete phenomenon, and every real concrete phenomenon is physical. So... There's two things being asserted there. Number one, that, you know, consciousness is real and, you know, the churchlands in their hot tub can say it's not, but, uh, you know, it, it still is and they're still feeling the bubbles and the heat um, <laughs> like everybody else. And every concrete phenomenon is non-experiential. How are you supposed to reconcile those two things? And it seems like Strassen says that the only real way of doing that without being an eliminativist about consciousness, which is silly, is to claim that it's emergent in some way. <laughs> as, as you said earlier, you, you put matter, non-experiential yeah. matter, in, in certain configurations and it can give rise to conscious experience in the same way that like, you know, you put two hydrogen uh, atoms and an oxygen atom together and it'll make liquidity or something like yeah. that. When you look at water, that's not, that seems like something completely different than two hydrogen atoms and, a, and an oxygen atom. It's like still fundamentally like the same thing. You can explain one in terms of the other, even though it seems totally different. One emerges out of the other in that configuration. Yeah. And I actually liked this part of the paper where he tries to take down emergence. And I think it's because I have a particular uh, annoyance with the way a lot of psychologists and people who do neuroscience, some of my best friends, they like to just say that there is no problem there. And right. so when you try to push them on the hard problem, they say it's not hard at all. It's just emerges just like Liquidity might emerge from non-liquid things. There's a new property that emerges, and this new property here is consciousness, and it is a result of whatever neurons in particular network configurations. And uh, I think Strassen rightfully points out that, no, there's a, there's a little bit of cheating going on there where um, the property of liquidity is understood to happen 
when electrons are, or what, sorry, when molecules are placed in certain configurations, just like solidity, just like crystals, we understand exactly what it is about collective molecules coming together to cause the property of shininess or of liquidity or whatever. In the same way, in his example, that nobody has any problem understanding how eleven things that are not a cricket team can come together to make a cricket team. Like that's I not actually a mystery. don't understand that uh. or cricket in general. But <laughs> yeah. well, I don't understand cricket either. <laughs> Let's just say an NFL team. How many people are on yeah. an NFL? So the temptation is just to point to the stuff we understand and somehow use it as, by analogy, um, as a way to understand what consciousness is. And he says, that's, that's just sort of cheating your way into, into explaining. You're not really doing anything. You still have the problem of how in the whole process of putting atoms together into neurons, into brains, how consciousness can get in there. And so he says, if emergence in that sense is what you mean, like emergence is just a miracle. You're just saying, you're just saying in a different way that like the miracle happened this way. But his miracle, isn't his miracle just to put it in earlier? That's 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 the thing. That's the thing that was ultimately so dif- disappointing about this is I'm not sure that the miracle like is is avoidable because look when you're talking about here's another point that Philip Goff makes and and I think Strassen makes in a and and Chalmers they all use frustratingly different words for yeah. this. One thing physics can't do because of the way it's set up is talk about the intrinsic nature of matter, of atoms, of electrons. It can only describe how they behave. And that's how we understand these things. We don't understand what the nature of an atom or an electron or a proton is. Um, That's not like something that uh, physics can... Even just the, the the methodology isn't designed to even try to figure out what that is. It is just looking at behaviors and trying to come up with causal laws. And that leads to, according to this view, a kind of circularity where everything is defined in terms of its behavior around this other stuff rather than going into its intrinsic nature. Now... As I understand it, some materialists uh, want to say, well, but that's just it. Like, you don't need to talk about intrinsic nature. That's that's a philosopher's term. And we can talk about these things in terms of equations, differential equations, and just how things interact with each other. And that's just all there is to the universe. And that's all there is to consciousness, too, is just how things interact with each other in the brain. Um, given that they are now going to be completely neutral about what the intrinsic nature, or as Chalmers says, the quiddity, or as I think Strassen's term is the ultimates. Yeah. So, so that, so it could be something like deeply strange, like a proto conscious kind of entity because it could, like, it could be anything. That's not what they're in the business of doing is trying to explain those things. So, or, or trying to investigate that. On the flip side, you have the panpsychics who then want to say, we have to try to explain what the intrinsic nature of the universe is or the, or the fundamental entities of the universe are. And so I'm going to say that they are conscious in some way that is very different than how we are conscious. In fact, completely unrecognizable 
to us in terms of our direct experience with consciousness. So then it seems like that's not going to do any better at tackling the hard problem of consciousness because we would have so little way of moving from this proto-consciousness to like the rich conscious experience that we are desperate to try to explain that's so fundamental to how we just interact with the world, how we understand the world, that every level has to be filtered through that. So, yeah, it just seems like a lot of these same problems come up and and it's not even clear what they're disagreeing about because especially since a lot of the physicists don't even have a... A, a take on what right. the fundamental uh, entity of reality really is. Yeah, and even even if they had a take, that take wouldn't involve a claim about whether or not there's subjectivity to an atom, because they, I think they would just say, like, I don't, even, I'm not sure how we would even describe that. But I think that part uh, where where it's there is this still this huge question about how the fundamental experiential stuff turns into our consciousness yeah is just shifted the question right and so like it has the illusion of progress by positing experience at the most fundamental level of reality but i don't know as you say what the difference is between the question how do experiential atoms become experiential humans yeah like is all that they're going to say is well no it's just like complicated Right, like we'll leave that. We'll leave that to the scientists. Right, <laughs> like, which is exactly what the materialists say. Right, right. You know, they say like, oh, well, we don't understand it now, but you know, we didn't understand how humans could evolve out of amoebas, and so you know, like that was conceptually crazy at a time. So we should just trust trust the process. You know, and I like, think that the, uh, <laughs> the Sixers. <laughs> and I think, I think that. Um, it it just bothers these philosophers of mind so much that they have a, a problem that seems intractable that they're okay solving it by shifting around the words. <laughs> I mean, here's what I like about what Galen Strawson does. You know, he's coming at it from this perspective that philosophers, they're so happy to just be these kind of hardcore reductionist or if not reductionist, functionalist, emergentist. It's like panpsychism is crazy. The idea that, you know, things could be fundamentally mental, that's just like, you know, incredulous stare stuff. That's possible worlds, whatever. Like they'll do anything but just admit that there might be some fundamental kind of mind stuff at the center of everything. And they'll be very scornful uh, and put panpsychic views, which is which have been around forever, they'll consign them to you know Ptolemaic astronomy or something like that, or something that's deeply superstitious and not worth taking seriously. And I think what Galen Strassen does a great job of in his work on this is say, look, this is not any weirder or more superstitious or less hard hard headed than um, than your view. Now, yeah. I I like it, I, and I agree with that. I like maybe we, you and I, might have a different take on this. I agree with Galen Strawson that what he's proposing is no weirder or uh, more goofy or wacky than what they're proposing. 
What I'm not sure about is whether it's less, right? Which he <laughs> thinks it is. Right. You know? Uh, it's like, I think it's just another way of describing the same problem. That was the, the sinking feeling that I had as I was going through this whole <laughs> literature. Yeah. So, okay. So a few things. If I have to summarize this, I would say Strassen and, and Chalmers, whoever, uh, Goff, say you have defined uh, this problem into being. Like the way that you set up the definition of material was always going to introduce this problem. And so let's avoid that by changing the definition. My deep problem is that the reason that we felt cheated is that they are borrowing a term that I think has been used to mean something that is similar only in the slightest way. And that is the view that some mystics have had, that some people who do deep meditation might have, that that there is either a universal consciousness that you know pervades all of existence, or that there is just like a deeply mystical, that there is some evidence that has come through, not through the you know empirical senses, but rather in some other deeper spiritual way, that there is life that pervades or that there is spirit that pervades. And they've taken, they've taken that term panpsychism that is pregnant with possibility about, you know, yeah. a non-scientific view of, of existence in the mind and the fundamental nature of reality. And they've used that term to mean we're going to define the problem out of existence much in the way that philosophers defined it into existence when they picked what they mean by material. Well, so, and I think in... Other modes, Galen Strassen, when he's talking about real physicalism, yeah. right? Like, which he takes to be his version of panpsychism, right? But what he says is it can have nothing to do with physicsalism, with capital S in the middle. Um, the view, the faith, that the nature and essence of all concrete reality can in principle be fully captured in terms of physics. Real physicalism cannot have anything to do with physicsolism. This is an unfortunate way of <laughs> yeah, really, trying yeah. to make the distinction. <laughs> it follows that real physicalism can have nothing to do with physicsolism, uh, the view, the faith that the nature or essence of all concrete reality can in principle be fully captured in terms of physics. Real physicalism cannot have anything to do with physicsolism unless it is supposed, obviously falsely, that the terms of physics can capture the nature or essence of experience. So there... Like, and this is why I was st still, it's page one, but I yeah. was still like really hopeful. And I actually really <laughs> liked the Strassen article. Yeah. But like, I, I still hear it was like, oh, okay. Cause I'm attracted to this view. The, me the methodology that you're uh, taking to trying to understand the universe and, 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 and having it had, to, you know, it has to be quantitative in this way and there is this just qualitative aspect to the universe that that language is incapable in principle of of explaining or helping us understand like i'm into that and i would want to know more about that i still still think he baits and switches you i think that yes, that's exactly what he's doing yeah and i think that the only thing that he's saying there is as he sort of um uh, goes into in the, his exchange with Dennett or in the original article with exchange with Dennett is that he thinks that by physicsalism he he simply means like a, the the hardcore materialism that isn't necessarily true of science 
but it just became sociologically the line that scientists use. That that the fundamental that fundamentally, uh, m- the material world cannot have experience built into it. Because all he's saying is that I think it can. Right, and so this is the thing. So Philip Goff just had this book come out, which I haven't read, called Galileo's Error, where he says the problem is, and, and Galen Strassen alludes to this kind of view um, many times when he's talking about Eddington and Russell, that the mathematical approach that physics has to take, that that, that has certain kind of limitations that closes us off to qualitative aspects of the world and our experience of the world, which is why it is so bad at trying to illuminate the nature of consciousness and that we have to like have another kind of science that can better capture these more qualitative aspects of the universe that just aren't amenable to the, you know, quantifiable um, equations. Like the observation, right? Like measurement and observation. Yeah. Or I don't know, like something like, but, but then that's never fleshed out is no. what that would be. So like one way of understanding is for like a neuroscientist who's interested in trying to understand how the brain makes consciousness. None of this matters because they're, they're going to proceed right. in the same exact way. Um, right. But I, yeah. And I, I think my sense was, and this was, a, yeah, I listened to a bit of a podcast with Goff and, and in reading Strassen is that push comes to shove. They're, they're kind of agnostic as to whether atoms have experience or not. They just are are saying like, well, don't rule it out because we have just as much reason to think that they do as you do to think that they don't, right? But what does that mean that <laughs> atoms have? Like, that's the that problem. That doesn't mean it. I don't know. It means nothing. It means no, it, it doesn't mean anything more than saying matter doesn't have consciousness. It's, you know, like, it's it's just the no. same thing. You know what this it is? This is my problem with the debate. It is like saying, uh, um, well, y- this whole time you've been defining... Uh, a bachelor is a single male and uh, that's caused problems for the way I think about bachelors. So let me change what the word bachelor means a little bit. They're analytic philosophers. So I guess like that matters. It matters whether their term has baked experience out of their metaphysics. I think they just think we made a mistake of baking experience out by defining things the way that we did. And they just want to bake it back in. Yeah. But I'm with you. Which is fine, except that it's, not experience in the way that that word means something right. for us. Like the whole impetus for panpsychism is how seemingly in principle impossible it is to get a kind of neuroscientific explanation for the richness of yeah. subjective experience. And saying that matter is uh, like an atom is 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 conscious, made of mind stuff in some way, doesn't. Like, I don't even know how to interpret that. I don't know what that means. And if it, <laughs> yeah, it's like it's consciousness all the way down, but it's like, wait, <laughs> you haven't told me anything when you say that. Um, right. In the same way that I think, like, the, ma- the materialists don't tell you anything when they just say, oh, no, no, but consciousness emerges out of the, the emergence. Like, this could, yeah, 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 yeah. I do think, though, that um, I'm 100% Team Strawson when it comes to tackling the claims that Dennett and other eliminativists make, because that to me is a move that is even, it is yeah. even sillier, right? Like I actually yeah. don't understand and I've never understood. And even after reading this exchange between Strassen and Dennett, I still don't understand if Dennett's just trolling us. <laughs> no. Like I feel like Dennett's just trolling us. Like 
the fundamental claim that the way, so yeah, it's like he, the panpsychic solved the problem by saying, no, look, it's consciousness all the way down. And the denets of the world describe it by saying like, no, no, not even you and I are conscious, which is just mind boggling to me. Like I don't. Well, no. So let's be fair to Dennett here, although I'm completely on your side in this. Um, he says, it's not that we deny consciousness. That would be really silly and crazy. It's just that we think consciousness isn't what you think it is. Right. But but the, the very, as Strawson points out, like, no, the, the, the that, very thing, like he actually quotes Dennett as saying like, no, we are all philosophical zombies. Yeah, which is just, Bizarre. And I think Dennett, like, at least the Churchlands are just going to, like, just be flat out eliminativist. I think Dennett does try to have it both ways at times. Mm -hmm. But then when you get into the details of why he's not denying the existence of consciousness, but he's just saying it's completely different than what we think it is. That Like, the details of that just turn out to be, it seems like de either denying consciousness or just recognizing that the hard problem exists, but what it doesn't do is explain, <laughs> or, or in any way, like, try to, like, right. get out of the hard problem, explain it, solve it, or even show why it's not really a problem. Right. What bothers me about the Dennett view, and I love Dennett because, because of his sort of uh, embrace of cognitive science and his... Uh, his naturalism and just, I think he's done a, a lot for integrating uh, these various strands of thinking from within neuroscience, cogn just cognitive science writ large, um, philosophy of mind. I love all that stuff. But he does do this thing that really bugs me, which I won't call science scientism because I don't stoop to your level. But he does this thing where he says, well, no, look, pain is just an illusion. By analogy, does he say that? Yeah, he says he says it's illusory, and and the, the analogies that he's trying to make is sort of like um, with the narrative self, like or identity, the problem of identity. You could say, look, there really is no you, Tamler. It's all just right. Like we can fool ourselves better than anything else. But what he's denying, and what Strassen is trying to call him on, is as Strassen says, when you say the illusion of pain what you don't seem to realize is that illusory pain is pain. It's just the same thing. There is no deeper yeah. claim there, right? The very sort of um, fundamental nature as you start out with, like the one undeniable thing uh, that there is a subjectivity to existence is what needs to be explained. And for him to say that the way I'm explaining this is by saying that's illusory is to weirdly take the structure of these other arguments that make sense and to apply it to this thing in which it doesn't really make sense. So, so Strauss, in Strassen's reply, he has a number of choice quotes from Dennett. So he says, um, a philosopher's zombie, Daniel Dennett writes, is behaviorally indistinguishable from a normal human being, but is not conscious. The zombie may, for example, be a piece of brilliant machinery with flesh-like covering that looks and acts like a human being, although there is nothing it is like to be a zombie. It just seems that way to observers. Plainly, the zombie is not conscious in the standard, rich, quaily-involving sense of conscious. And he goes on to quote Dennett again. Are zombies possible, Dennett asks? They're not just possible, they're actual. We're all zombies. And that just right. seems like, wait, you've missed what we're trying to explain. No, I agree. But I, then I think that like that's not fully consistent with... Um, yeah, he's slippery. Yeah. Here, Okay, let's, let's look at his reply, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
So he says, Galen Strawson's most obvious mistake is his misrepresentation of my main claim. I don't deny the existence of consciousness. Of course consciousness exists. It isn't what people, what most people think it is. And as said many times, I do grant that Strawson expresses quite uh, vividly a widespread conviction about what consciousness is. Might people, and Strawson in particular, be wrong about this? That is the issue. And then further down, so he's quoting Strawson again. One of the strangest things that the deniers say is that although it seems that there is conscious experience, there isn't really any conscious experience. The seeming is, in fact, an illusion. The trouble with this is that any such illusion is already and necessarily an actual existence of the thing said to be an illusion, which yeah, seems right. right to me. No, we deniers do not say this. We say that there isn't any conscious experience in the sense that Strassen insists upon. We, conscious, we say consciousness seems, to many who reflects upon the point, to involve being directly acquainted, as Strassen puts it, with some fundamental properties, qualia. But this is an illusion, a philosopher's illusion. Yeah, I guess I just don't know what that means. No, I don't either. It seems like there's equivocation going on, but it's really frustrating because I don't even know what yeah. it's equivocating to. I just don't know what he's saying. No, I don't like either. I, here's my attempt. So my, my attempt, it's not going to be satisfying, but my attempt at explaining what Dennett is saying is he is endorsing a kind of functionalism. He, he is just saying, uh, no, consciousness is simply the stuff that our brain is doing, like processing yeah. information and all that. And so there's no mystery there because we know how computers process information, right? Right. But then it's like not an explanation. No, it's not. I, I feel like yeah. this is what Sean Carroll was doing in in that discussion was just saying, that's just it. He even said at one point, let's say we have a neuroscientific explanation, like we, we see how neurons interact when a person uh, experiences redness or whatever. Yeah. Saying that the person experiences redness is just saying that their neurons, neurons yeah. are interacting in those ways. Yeah. I, I mean, you can say that, but you haven't explained. Like the neurons aren't red. The, like the yeah. the neurons don't compose the experience. So I guess the question would just be: Fine, you can say that, but I then I don't feel like uh, a conscious experience has been explained to me. I've just gotten correlations in one kind of language that doesn't seem to map onto how I describe experience, and so. Yeah, it's impressive. <laughs> if if that would be possible, it would be impressive to correlate all those things as precisely as possible. But I still think there is that explanatory yeah. gap that, you know, you have to at least admit exists. Yeah, I'm open to the, the belief that um, we've just never, we, we, we we're asking the wrong kind of question, like, I guess. Like, it seems... It seems like this is all just extremely wrought. I don't even know if, if the way in which we're asking the question about subjectivity and experience and consciousness is is maybe we're misguided from the beginning and maybe we'll never solve it. But I do know that this the self-satisfactory nature of saying that we've made progress by either eliminating consciousness or by saying it's all even atoms are subject like have subjectivity is something that I just Right. Just it's like more frustrating to me. I'd rather I'd rather <laughs> be a full-on Mysterian. Like I just yeah. you know. I totally I was thinking, although I didn't go back to like the Colin McGinn yeah. stuff, but I was thinking, you know, maybe like this has made me <laughs> somehow like think, oh yeah, he might be onto something. And I <laughs> like his view is even stronger. It's it's not that we don't currently have the proper conceptual yeah. schemes 
to try to understand consciousness, but there's something about being human that would make that right. like impossible right. for us to to do. And I, maybe that's too strong, but I am fully in agreement with the view that <laughs> right now, the tools that we have, the conceptual tools that we have, the methods that we have, like that's not going to, that's not going to do it. You know what does bother me too, though, is that in, in my dear colleagues, psychological ones, especially many, many of the ones who are like the best neuroscientists, um, who like know shit about the brain that I, you know, that I could never understand. They, they do seem to miss entirely that the hard problem, they, they actually look in frustration and say, what do you mean? How does consciousness arise? They just like, not like, look, like there is this part of the brain that like does this and then you get consciousness. They were completely miss the whole explanatory gap argument. Like they, they just really think that they must think terrible things about philosophers who consist continue to say that this is a mystery that needs to be solved because they're just like, no, I mean, we just need better MRIs or whatever. And then we'll, we'll be able to tell you how it happens. But what's so bizarre about that view is that the only reason they can conduct MRIs, the only reason they can engage in scientific endeavors at all is through this conscious experience, which is how the only way they interact with the world in a scientific way. It's a, it's a very bizarre <laughs> view. And maybe like, you know, it comes down to like philosophy of science things as what counts as, you know, a satisfying explanation and, and what doesn't. But um, yeah, I find that very strange too, that they, they just don't see. They might yeah. say that a robot could do science, right? Like they're just, you don't need consciousness but maybe a robot could, but they're not robots. They have to, the only way they do con uh, science is consciously. Well, I, I don't know. I actually disagree with that. I think that they, that there is nothing about qualia that makes us able to do science. Like I think that there is this thing of what is it like to do science, but that's not what's. But you don't doubt that they are consciously, that they are conscious I, while they're doing I, it. I, no, not at all. I believe that they have, there is a qualia to what it's like to do an MRI, but I don't think that it's necessary to do an MRI, right? I didn't say it was necessary. I'm saying that uh, whether it's necessary or oh. not, they have They have consciousness, yes, yes. Yeah, they, they have, have consciousness. They, they, and so like the whole reason they even have their uh, physical theories is, is via consciousness. It's through consciousness. I, I see. Their interface yeah. to the universe is conscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I know. I, it's a weird, I mean, I can kind of get there sometimes like in, in, in my crankiest where I'm like, I don't know, just, you know, the anterior cingulate and the whatever, the fucking, like, you know. <laughs> C-fiber. 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 Okay. You know, I also heard uh, uh, this podcast with uh, Philip Goff on it, uh, the Lex Friedman podcast that came out recently, but he said something that actually really perplexed me. He said that when he wrote that book, um, he sort of has a chapter on why dualism isn't a satisfactory, you know, account of, of, of consciousness. And then he said, but my views since writing the book have changed, I must admit, because I used to think uh, my argument before was if dualism were true, then we would expect to see uh, something like uncaused non-material things influencing brains. And you would be able to see this in an MRI. You would see sort of like a, all of a sudden something happening in the brain. And then he, and then he said, uh, but yeah. since then I've actually been convinced by some of my uh, colleagues in neuroscience that this might actually be happening. So dualism might not be as untrue as I thought. Wait, what? <laughs> I swear. 
Okay, it sounds like I'm butchering it because I'm stuttering when I say it. But his view was that in when he was writing the book, he thought dualism must be wrong for empirical reasons that we would have evidence by looking at brain activity that like it would be somehow initiated spontaneously in a way that would be consistent with like a non-material cause influencing brains to light up. Right. And he yeah. said that's that's the argument that I had when I wrote the book. Uh, against dualism. Since then, though, I've been convinced by my... Wait, but I want to understand the previous view. So yeah. he thinks that, like, if dualism were true... You would see evidence of it in, in brain imaging. You And the way... But that evidence would be what? That, that's like, what I wasn't quite sure. That, that, uh, that, like, neurons are firing, but there's no cause for that? Yeah. That we don't I see any cause for that? Something like that, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, the way, that's yeah. the way that I understood what he was saying. And that since then, he's been convinced that there might actually be some evidence... Um, for this. That actually that happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like they, you know, to the Humean point, it's not like they see the causes, right? No, so like, I, why don't they, why don't they just think that the thing that happened before <laughs> is the cause? I don't know. I don't know. I was, I, I'm probably doing an injustice to, he's a, obviously a very smart guy. It just like, I was walking my dog listening to this and I wanted to drop my phone. I didn't understand because all arguments about dual, you know, these are all, Really, most philosophers would say this is just such a metaphysical problem that that you can't really bring any science to bear on whether or not there's spirit. Uh, yeah, except the kind that you take, which is if there were spirit, we should be able to uh, have evidence, like scientific evidence. No, no. The, my view is that if ghosts operate in the physical world, there would be physical evidence. Yeah. It's it's weird. Like, here's the thing. <laughs> I believe that the neuroscientists say that because, you know, when you get to really abstract theoretical physics or even, you know, maybe neuroscience at, at, at the deepest level, it's all very weird anyway, right? Even like the people who call themselves materialists and wear it like a badge of honor, it's still all so weird and strange that it, it's, it's no less crazy sounding or counterintuitive than the panpsychism, I don't think. And I think this is the point that panpsychists are, are making is, you know, once we go down to the fundamental levels and whether you think there's an intrinsic nature to uh, or fundamental entities or quiddities or ultimates, um, it's so weird anyway that, like, to try to argue at that point about whether it's better to call that, like, material or experiential yeah. or material or conscious it's it's just like I, at that point like it just kind of loses all meaning because none of those things are recognizable to us in the normal way we understand those terms both from the panpsychic perspective or from the materialist perspective so like i'm not sure what hangs on except maybe just a general open-mindedness about uh how the universe works but i, I don't see what the benefit uh, is of having that argument at that level. I do agree with you that when you get down to the basics, the fundamentals of reality, it is so odd and confusing and weird that um, I think that I do end up being a mysterian about this stuff in that I think who whoever thought that we would have either the brain power, the, con the concepts, any ability to understand reality is at its fundamental level. <clears throat> My concern is that we just won't know when we don't know. Like we we won't know the limits yeah. of our knowing. 
And, but you know, you shared these articles on some quantum phenomenon that people are, are fucking with. Oh yeah. And that stuff is so fucking weird that you need, one of the reasons I kind of wasn't enthusiastic about talking about it was because conceptually I have no tools to talk about that stuff. Cause I think that the only concepts that get you any understanding are really advanced mathematics or advanced to me, um, right. mathematics that then they convert into normal language. And it sounds like gobbledygook. Like something being there and not being there at the same time or something, you know, and and it's cool that we've gotten to the point where our mathematics allows us to whatever, say something about quantum fields and, and you know, about the na- entanglement and, and causations and make these predictions. But um, there will be a point at which it will just we will stop being able to even know if we're making progress, I think. And, and just talking about, you know, quantum physics and all the different kinds of interpretations, how to translate that math into something that isn't math. Yeah. The variety of ways that people try to do <laughs> yeah. that is incredible. You know, that's where you get the multiple universes. Like, I think this is another version of the hard problem is like just getting that stuff to make sense beyond just the formulas is really difficult. And you can and it's also flexible. You can do it in all sorts of different ways. And all of them have their count like completely counterintuitive, mind-boggling, science fiction-y elements to it. Yeah. This is why, yeah, this is part of why I'm open to ghosts. It's like, <laughs> uh, like you know, th- it's going to turn out that there's there's not there's no there there to our disagreement because like sometimes you're just Martin Bailey about it all the time. Like all I ever mean is that ghosts as a construct in the way that you talk about them, like there's no evidence for them. If what you mean is that like, we don't know if there are strings vibrating at the most fundamental levels or whether there are particles interacting and that weirdness means that we should accept weirdness, then fine. <laughs> no, but see, here's the difference between me and what I am disappointed to find out <laughs> are panpsychists. It's like, what I am open to is something that I can describe and that will make sense to you. That there really are, like, spirits that interact with us and that, and that some non-trivial percentage, or it really just has to be just more than one, uh, or one or more, one. of people who have claimed that they have had contact with these spirits are telling the truth and that they really did. If we were that person, we would understand and have immediately like get what that felt like and it would be something like the way that it's described they're actually moving shit around or they're actually uh, <laughs> you know talking to you or telling you something or, or predicting something prophesizing something to you that turns out to be true but the, but there's a real entity that's doing that that's what I'm open to and I feel like that's at least making a concrete claim that I just don't know <laughs> if the panpsychic is making like, I don't think the panpsychic is like everything's exactly the same except that I'm going to describe electrons differently <laughs> than you describe electrons. Like that's just uh, right. No, I, they're I, not making yeah. that claim because they because there's zero reason to make the claim about ghosts. It's not it's not going to get their <laughs> philosophy of mind anywhere to to like start talking about ghost experiences. No, but you know what I mean. Yeah, like yeah. that's just not. We can't take a stand on on that issue. It seems like because we don't even know what it means to take a stand on that issue. That's the that's the problem. We don't we don't quite know what it means. All I know is that it does seem wrong to eliminate consciousness as a thing that needs to be explained. I think that's the only yes. thing I'm certain about uh, when it comes to philosophy of mind. 
that's the thing. Aside from the Dennett's and the Churchlands, I think most people agree with that. And so the debate is, do we have the tools right now and the methodology that we will ultimately be able to explain consciousness just like, you know, D- we use DNA to explain human evolution um, in ways that might have seemed unfathomable to us 300 years ago, but with the same general methodology, the scientific method and the concepts that we currently have. The, the Sean Carrolls of the world think, no, 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 just give us some time and there's going to be a lot of roadblocks and it's going to be a long journey but we, we got this, ultimately. And that's what I actually don't... Like, I'm with you where I think, maybe, but maybe Colin McGinn is right. And no, like, you just can't... Like, that's too complex for beings of our uh, intelligence. Yeah. I It's to the point where I think that if, if we had um, whole network sort of mappings of the, a human brain, a conscious human brain, and we had... Every neuron and the the relationship between the, the substructures that create and all of the firing patterns, and we emulated them in a very complicated computer, and that computer told us, hey, guess what? I'm conscious. I don't know that we would have the ability to distinguish whether or not it was conscious. And because it's so fundamentally fucked up like that, it doesn't seem to me to be a scientific endeavor. I'm... Like right. as a scientist or whatever, I could be a functionalist. And I could say like, well, we sh- we have to treat it like it's conscious. Right. We, you know, if it quacks like a duck, then let's just call it a duck. But I don't know that I would know <laughs> whether it is or not. Right. And they would say, or at least some of some of that group would say, well, that just is consciousness. So you're wrong to say yeah, that that's you right. don't know. And I'm not. Yeah. And I think that yeah. that's not satisfying to just be to just be that much of a functionalist about it. Uh, yeah. It's a it's a it's always been a deeply dissatisfying area of philosophical inquiry for me. And I think it's partly because of the this this terminology and like in the weedsness of it that's so hard to follow. And um just the uh, unsatisfying nature of of the explanations that have been offered. And I don't know that's yeah. That's my problem with it. I mean, like, you know, a lot of fields have technical terminology and stuff like that. But even when you really dig into it, like I, it, it it lacks that kind of satisfying quality. I mean, I like, if you want to call something pan proto psychism, (laughs) fine. But I want that to mean something to me that I, I recognize as fundamentally different than it's, Yeah. Okay. So this is maybe my, my last thing to say about this. Um, there is when, when you give me like a trot, like the, the trolley problem where you formulate the footbridge with the lever scenario and you, and you realize, Oh shit, there's something, there's something weird about my intuitions here. And then you give me maybe some principle that might explain my intuitions in both of those ways. I still, even though that's the kind of philosophy I know you don't like, I still kind of get a satisfaction when, when there is some sort of like, oh, what your intuition really is about is about uh, direct harm or, you know, whatever. Like sometimes I'm like, okay, I, like maybe that's the case. Sure. I, I was staring today at uh, Chalmers's laying out of the conceivability argument about the zombies. And I read it. The structural zombies the, versus categorical zombies. No, this was right. just the conceivability part where he says, here is what the argument, how the argument goes. Are philosophical zombies conceivable? 
If so, does that mean they're metaphysically possible? And if they're metaphysically possible, whatever, like, I forget now how I formulate it. And I read it uh, and I understood it. If it's metaphysically possible, then that means the physical facts can't. That's explain. right. Then, then some, uh, some form of like non-material. Yeah. yeah. I understood it. And I still felt like I was somehow being cheated into like buying a, a conclusion. And I couldn't quite get why. So I actually think that that's another way of just expressing uh, the the view that you expressed earlier on this episode when you said that, you know, like the the neuroscientific, like you could look at all the neurons and still not know whether the person was conscious or not because that it doesn't seem like it's explaining or in any way indicating even whether the person is having a conscious subjective experience. I take the zombie argument to just be a philosopher thought experiment way of expressing that same sentiment. Did, did, did he need to take us through conceivabil- conceivability and the relationship between conceivability and metaphysical possibility? Like, I, that's the part that I'm just like... I mean, I, I probably not, yeah. Or, or, or you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, dual, two-dimensional semantics. But, yeah. right. But, like, I don't know. I, I do think that that and the knowledge, you know, the Mary argument are essentially just saying that right now the way we describe physical phenomenon doesn't seem like it's yeah. in the same genre of thing that conscious phenomena is. And we have to like reckon with that. Yeah, um, that's right. OK, so then I, I think that what I'm saying is I've never gotten any sort of satisfact like there's never been a conclusion where I feel satisfied in the way that I am sometimes with like a normative ethics paper or even a paper on free will where you're like, no, look, this is how determinism isn't incompatible with. Um, I don't get that with philosophy of mind. I don't know. Maybe I'm broken. Yeah, no, I do, too. <laughs> right. I mean, because I think like you expressed the point that there is to make about that. Um, in ways that I don't know uh, have been improved upon, upon with all this technical apparatus that they've constructed around the problem. And you never know what, whether a debate is purely terminological or not. You know, yeah. like at every point you're kind of suspecting, wait a minute, what hangs on this? What are the stakes here? Here's my question for the panpsychists and the people who engage in this debate is what are the stakes? Like, how will this affect either like how we do science or how we understand the universe, how we understand the world, other than like, don't just tell me words like, well, it's fundamentally this or fundamentally that. Like there has to be some way of grasping it where I realize that that there is a, a problem here that people are taking two stands on in the way that like a ghost believer is taking a stand on an issue and a, a ghost skeptic is taking a stand on an issue. And there are stakes to that debate. If one of them is right, like that, that matters. Or if the other one is right, that matters. And I just don't know what the stakes are. I don't either. Love somebody to tell us. Cause maybe like, I'm fully willing to admit that I might be completely misguided yeah, on that. Me too. I even think I'll go as far as to say, I don't, I, don't, I somehow doubt you'll agree. Even the knowledge debate where <laughs> like justified true belief may not be the best way to define knowledge because Gettier said so with these cases. Even that has an outcome that I'm sort of comfortable with, which is, well, look, the, the, the belief that there might be a necessary and sufficient definition of knowledge in the way that we use the concept was misguided to begin with. And like, I think we might conclude out of that whole debate that that, that gives me some satisfaction 
in right. a way that family resemblances. Wittgenstein was right. Let's yeah, move on. And I don't even get yeah. that with like philosophy of mind stuff. No, right. It was so depressing to read the Chalmers paper <laughs> and to realize that we were still getting back to like zombies, but now they were proto pan psychic. <laughs> Uh, Russellian zombies or something <laughs> like that. Like it's just like, oh man, I thought we were. Did you see Strawson calls them Australian zombies? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Strawson is. Uh, I don't think the. I think they have a. I was going to say friendly rivalry, but I'm not <laughs> sure how, fr- how friendly it is. Um, but I, I like I, I. You know, the funny thing about Chalmers also is he's not ruling out dualism. Like, yeah. At least uh, Strawson wants to rule out dualism. Um, yeah. You know, as uh, again, even that though, you get to the difference between property dualism and substance dualism, and yeah. you're like, unless you're positing like a soul. Like, I'm not sure, like, what the fuck we're talking about. These people have here. no bravery unless they're rattling chain ghosts. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know, like, concept, like, is this really just, like, what are we calling things? Like, what words are we going to use to call things that we all agree upon exist? Like, if that's the debate, then I'm way less interested. Like, I, like you said the, yeah. at the beginning of the episode, me as I thought this was going to be <laughs> like rivers or spirits <laughs> that like I can meet when my parents turn into pigs. <laughs> you were, it's, it's like, it must be so much even more disappointing to you having come in with that possibility. <laughs> I, because I want that. I'm looking for that. I am willing, like, you know, and I get it a little bit, but not out of this debate. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I can introduce you to some family members who will convince you uh, in their ghost stories. Oh, really? Uh, and and you just like ridicule them and like well, mock just, them behind their back. They're completely wrong. Yeah, they're ridiculable. If they're crazy. Yeah. Well, you should like put them in not, an institution not, uh, against their will. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will. Okay, this is going to be my final pronouncement. That thing that yeah, you said, uh, wh- whether or not it's all just different ways of saying the thing that we all agree exists, yes. I'm willing to say all the philosophy of mind is only that. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> pronouncing it. <laughs> I'm calling it. That's that's it. It's everybody is just trying to find a, a different way to say the thing that we all agree about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a strain of philosophy of mind is that. Like, I don't think that, like, the philosophy of mind that William James was doing is right. like that, you know? Right, um, yeah. And I, so I think there is a good strain of philosophy of mind, I, but I think this strain... I will, yeah, and yeah, it's, I was tainted yeah. by taking a, a philosophy of mind class in graduate school uh, yeah. that absolutely turned me off. To, <laughs> it was the worst class in philosophy I've ever taken. Uh, yeah. I also fully admit that uh, there, are, I'm sure there are domains of philosophy that are uh, much worse than this. This is just that domain that is within reach, like it's just yeah. within reach for my training, um, and that, and and on something that's interesting yeah, exactly. to me, yeah. like you know, like, uh, and I think that you know, it's probably not a surprise that if if they're if we're going to run aground philosophically. Like consciousness might be the thing that is, uh, it has, it's at that center of A, being just completely mysterious and also being something that, you know, we, we really are certain of, but also have very little way of reconciling with the other ways we approach the world. All right. Well, mystery is fine. Mystery is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's go drink ourselves into (laughs) non-consciousness. 
That's my goal every night. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for suggesting this. I hope, I'm sorry if we didn't uh, have as much enthusiasm for the topic itself, but we're going to get a lot of email explaining consciousness to us, I think. Or explain, I would love that. I, explaining the stakes of this debate, um, I would especially love. Yeah. All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard. <laughs>